Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I believe that an Alberta pension plan would be fairer and could make life more affordable for all Albertans. It could bring more benefits for seniors, higher take-home pay for workers, and strengthen the Alberta advantage to attract business. I believe it's the right decision for our province. Well, this is the Premier this morning uh, commenting on the release of a report commissioned by the Finance Department looking into the impact of Alberta leaving the Canada pension plan and going its own way. Alberta would be the first province to leave the CPP. Quebec was never in it in the first place. Uh, So this report suggests that, uh, indeed, Alberta could have lower premiums and comparable benefits. And also that Alberta would be entitled to a pretty significant chunk of the CPP's assets. So joining us to talk about this report, what it tells us, where this all goes from here, very pleased to welcome to the program uh, one of the folks on hand for the announcement or the press conference today, Alberta's uh, Minister of Finance, President of Treasury Board, Nate Horner. Minister, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you very much, Rob. Appreciate the opportunity. Now, and and you can clarify then, I mean, based on, on the Premier's comments, your comments today, I mean, it certainly seems like the government's position is that we should move ahead with this, that that it's a position in favor of leaving the CPP. Is it fair to characterize the government's position that way? Well, I would characterize it this way, that, you know, we, we think that the report is is compelling. You know, we I think we believe that Albertans uh, will find it compelling. And uh, we're very committed to this process where if, if they do and they ask us to proceed uh, through the engagement panel uh, chaired by uh, Mr. Jim Dinning, um that's that's the process we'll take um but then we would go to a a, a referendum so we're committed to the process and uh, and making sure it's what albertans want right but you are advocating one side in this debate it seems like well i think to give it a fair shake rob i think we have to make sure that the information gets out there there is uh lots of uh lots of people that will uh spread maybe maybe misinformation on on the other side there's lots of people that would like to see us uh stay in the cpp uh forever for lots of different reasons but i think we're just committed to getting the facts out as laid out in this report okay well again i mean it's it's hard to be both the yes side in a debate and kind of the the objective arbiter of of the information isn't it well i think that's the beauty of of uh, making clear that we would only proceed with a referendum the the jury will be the people of Alberta. Well, I fair enough, that, but I mean, you, you seem to have a preferred outcome in the referendum, and and yet you're also providing the information that will allow us to make a decision in that referendum. It just is. Is there a conflict there? Well, I'd say we're, we're taking the best information we have. When we commissioned this report, it was with Morneau Chappelle, now LifeWorks. I'm not a lawyer or an actuary. I'm, I'm we're laying out the best information that we have. Mm-hmm. And uh, I hope Albertans, you know, read the report, uh, try to learn and understand it. And it's it's very interesting the history of CPP, how we got here, how Alberta's young population are a higher percentage in the workforce, uh, a higher percentage with, you know, the maximum uh, uh, pensionable earnings uh, being put into the plan. 
Um, the plan has has grown, or the fund has grown to a large size, in uh, in a great part because of of Albertans' demographics and their hardworking nature, and that's what the report shows. Okay, why did it take until now to release this report? Uh, well, when it was first, they they update the data from the the chief actuary every three years. So we did. We did have an early version of the report, uh, but felt it prudent to get the newest updated updated data before we brought it before Albertans. Um, that's 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 really uh, that's really all it was. Got here as quick as we could. Okay. Well, let's talk about what's in this report. And I guess, you know, one, one aspect that really stands out here, and, and this speaks to the process in place for a province to lead the CPP, uh, the interpretation here, and I, I would note, and you can address this, but in the report, it's described as an alternate interpretation, but that Alberta would be entitled to half, 50% uh, of the CPP's assets. Yes. Okay. So the the difference is, uh, the, and I should I should just note, Rob. There's always been a withdrawal formula since right. inception in 1966. It was altered in 1997 uh, to include the net investment income. Uh, there is a very literal interpretation that would say that uh, we're entitled to 117 percent of the of the asset pool. Uh, but the uh, the commission group that did the study uh, took a, a logical and comprehensive uh, approach and the uh, interpretation of the formula they've used, um, we've had uh, looked at by multiple uh, legal legal groups, and they uh, they back it up that the calculation formula is solid, as well as their interpretation and methodology. Well, and it's interesting. There, there's a report released today as well by economist Trevor Tooman, and, and we're going to speak to him a little bit later. But um, he makes the argument that if we take the same interpretation. And, and apply it to Ontario. Like if Alberta and Ontario were doing this at the same time, these these claims would amount to more than a hundred percent of the CPP's assets. How, how is that workable? Well, I think that if you use the calculation, it it will it will net out. I think it is it is true that there's uh, provinces that would be at a um, a, a net um, an, a net taker from the plan. Uh, but the, basically, the formula is Alberta's contributions in uh, minus benefits paid uh, minus Alberta's share of the expenses uh, plus the net investment income. And it very much mimics uh, how you would unwind uh, a private sector pension plan with multiple participants. Here's what I wonder, because this seems like a big factor. And, and if this is a correct interpretation, then, then, then that's a pretty compelling argument to, to move ahead with this. But we don't know if that's what's going to be agreed to. Uh, are, and, and are we likely then to go into a referendum at some point without having a clear answer on, on what exactly Alberta would receive? Well, I, I would be, uh, I'd be careful not to speculate at this point, I guess, Rob. What we, what we know today is the best information in front of us. I'm sure there will be lots of, of different uh, opinions, legal and otherwise, that come out in the days to come. And uh, we're committed to the process. I'm sure Mr. Jim Denning and his panel uh, will, will hear all of these different uh, arguments and, and debate in the public sphere. Um, but back to where we're at today, this is the information that we're going off of. 
Right. Okay. And so based on this, um, so the, the contribution rate as it currently stands in the CPP versus what an Alberta plan could offer. So this is where the report sees some savings, that, that it would be a, a lower contribution rate, but with what comparable benefits? Yeah. So the, the report tried to make a real apples to apples comparison um, with, with the asset transfer as noted. Currently, the, the minimum contribution rate to the CPP is 9.54% of, of contributable earnings. Um, the legislative amount's 9.9%, so that's maybe a little bit of nuance there, but they, they have a wedge built in so they can ensure that the, that the fund grows. With the, the report makes clear without asset transfer, with, with an APP, we could have a minimum contributable uh, amount of 5.91%. Now they may still choose to, to put a, a wedge in there if, if we got that far, but so that would be the comparison from 9.54% to 5.91% CPP to APP. Okay. Uh, on the cost side, and, and this does identify, you know, the cost of a transition. There's quite a wide range, though, identified in this report. And I guess another cost that's harder to quantify is uh, the assumed risk here and whether we would be taking on additional risk versus what the, the current CPP investment board takes on. What, what about those costs? Well, the way, the way that they measure the sustainability of, of plans like this that are, are kind of modified pay-as-you-go is they use an asset um, over expenditure ratio. Uh, currently, the CPP sits at about 8.4 uh, in that regard. An APP with this asset transfer would be at 28.9. Um, and that's, that's really the measure they, they look to to see if, um, if a, a pension is, is healthy. And they, they look at it over 75 years. Question so that's come far, up, yeah. far higher number. Okay, a question that's come up a lot, and maybe this is something we need to figure out along the way. But uh, if if we go down this path, does that mean either everyone stays in CPP or everyone leaves CPP, or are we talking about a scenario where people could have the option of staying, or those who are currently collecting CPP would stay? What about that, as you understand it? Well, it would it would very much mimic the way um, the Quebec pension plan works works with and alongside CPP. Um, our expectation would be for for full uh, portability. Uh, so that would work both ways. If you're if you're working in Alberta and retire somewhere else, or vice versa, you would get the the benefit of your contributions in in both places, but you would only receive uh, one check, so to speak. Right. But I mean, just to be clear, like Quebec never left the CPP. This is unique in a province leaving CPP. So someone in Alberta who collects CPP right now, would they be switched over to, to an Alberta pension plan then? Uh, correct. Okay. And then, and then there would be reciprocal uh, reciprocal arrangements with uh, CPP and QPP to make sure there was full uh, portability and, and transferability. Okay. Uh, so as you mentioned now, there's, there's a process here to, to, to garner feedback from Albertans. Are, are we on a certain timeline here or, or where, you know, how, how long is this all going to take to make a determination? Sure. Well, we, the panel that uh, was activated today, chaired by Jim, Jim Denning, we expect that it will run until May of 2024. And then we would like some kind of a, you know, what we've heard report uh, with recommendations from the panel. And that that'd really be the next milestone in this in this process. Expect to hear, you know, 
beyond just uh, you know whether there's an appetite for this in general, but other other specifics. All right. Well, we'll look forward to further conversation on all of this. Uh, Minister Horner, thanks again for making some time for us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. All the best. That is Alberta's Minister of Finance, President of Treasury Board, Nate Horner. An overview of this report, what it found, where this all goes from here. Uh, again, I, I, and I take the government as its word here, like they're not going to decide to do this without first having a referendum. That would be a pretty huge broken promise. But they definitely do seem uh, in favor of this. Are Albertans? Are you? Welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on a busy Tuesday afternoon. We'll get to more of your phone calls here, 403-974-8255. Here the things to get to as well. But, of course, the big story today here in Alberta, the release of this report, and I guess the kicking off of a big conversation. And, and look, let's have this conversation then. Like, let's go through this in a thorough way and make a decision. Do we want to stay in the Canada Pension Plan or do we want to leave and establish an Alberta Pension Plan? So this report today outlines uh, certainly many of the potential benefits of leaving the uh, CPP. Uh, there are costs and there are risks, too. And I think it's important that we understand all of it. Uh, this is an important contribution to that conversation as well. Uh, economist Trevor Toome out today with a working paper, a quantitative analysis of a separate provincial plan, a really interesting look at the pros and the cons. Now, joining us to talk more about all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, the aforementioned Trevor Toome, associate professor, Department of Economics, University of Calgary, also research fellow at the School of Public Policy. Trevor, good to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. Uh, so there's a lot to go through, and this is a big and important issue. But mm -hmm. one area I wanted to start with, and I guess it is rather technical, and there are different interpretations, but the idea that Alberta leaves, there's a formula for a province leaving. What kind of a conclusion can we reach on what Alberta would be entitled to? That's the really central question for us to think about uh, in terms of the longer-run sustainability of an Alberta pension plan. And unfortunately... The language of the Canada Pension Plan Act has uh, a little bit of ambiguity to it. It's not entirely clear what it means in different contexts. And there's several reasonable interpretations that could be applied to it. One interpretation is what the external report that the government released today went with, and that leads to a little over 50% of pension plan assets for Canada being given mm -hmm. to Alberta. And all, uh, alternative interpretations uh, yield very different numbers. Kind of my own suggests a, a range of 20 to 25% would be the uh, conclusion you draw from that language, which itself is really quite large, considering how much Alberta accounts for overall population. Sure. Right? So us getting a larger share than our population is really because of larger historical contributions to the plan, but potentially not as much as over 50% as the, the LifeWorks report suggests. Right, and, and that is one interpretation, That's but right. I guess you know one of the conclusions you, you find here is that, well, if Alberta could make that claim, so could on, Ontario. It's hard to envision a situation where two provinces could, could take more than 100% of the assets. That's right. So uh, applying the LifeMark interpretation, which I guess just to clarify in simple terms, means putting a province in the position that it would be in had it never joined CPP from the start. Right. And if Alberta and Ontario were to do that, then immediately with these two provinces alone, 
you'd have more than exists within the CPP fund. And some provinces would come out with a negative number. And so that, that's a problem with that interpretation in terms of how it's implemented, putting aside mm-hmm. the, the legal interpretations. It, it's hard mathematically to inter, uh, implement that particular interpretation. But I guess how relevant is this? If we're to determine, okay, what, what would Alberta have to charge in terms of a, a premium or a contribution rate? What kind of payouts would, would Alberta be able to offer? Like how much of that hinges on knowing what we're starting with? This is one of the most important variables in determining how much workers would pay in because, of course, assets don't just sit there. They generate returns, and that supplements contributions by workers. So the LifeWorks report concludes about a 5.9% contribution rate might be possible, which is four full percentage points less than the CBP. Um, my own analysis actually taking their asset number suggests maybe 56 might be possible. But with less of the CPP assets, say 20%, which is $120 billion, is still quite a bit, mm-hmm. uh, then the contribution rate would be 8.2. So still pretty meaningfully lower than the Canada Pension Plan, but uh, not as much lower as that 5.9. So little changes in assets lead to enormous changes in those contribution rates. Right. And so, yeah, that, that's an important point. There is still the opportunity, even with a more I guess, sober assessment of, oh, yeah. of the, the size of this, that, that the Albertans could save on contributions. But the other question is, I guess, how much of this depends on demographic trends? Mm-hmm. Yes, Alberta has a younger workforce now, a higher percentage in the workforce. But do we sort of need all of that to stay true? Yeah. So we don't need that Alberta remain as young as it, is, as it is now, right? Populations are aging here and across the country. I think what, what's, what matters is whether or not populations are aging faster than we anticipate. So the analysis by LifeWorks, the, my own analysis in the paper you, you noted that was released today, both feature aging populations. And so okay. That's, that's okay. The question's unexpected changes in demographics. And, and yeah, that's a real risk. Uh, it's a risk that we've seen in Quebec, for example. They started with a similar contribution rate to the Canada Pension Plan, and now Quebec workers pay a full percentage point more because they aged more quickly. And so demographic risks, economic risks, these are risks that exist for any pension plan. Uh, but the CPP, because it's national in nature, kind of pools those risks a little bit more effectively than a separate Alberta plan would. But to be clear, I mean, these are... These are also manageable risks, too. We just need to be aware of what they are and evaluate whether that risk exposure is worth uh, the uh, reduction in contribution rates that workers would make. So the, uh, let's talk about then the, the additional risk that an Alberta pension plan could be exposed to and what kind of range you look at, because it is possible, depending on how much risk there is, that, that we lose that contribution upside. Oh, Indeed. So just for example, migration matters a lot for Alberta's economy and any provincial economy. And the inflows and outflows of workers here would affect the sustainability of a pension plan to the extent that it's largely young people moving in. Mm -hmm. And historically, that's tied to things like oil prices and so on. If Alberta were to have no net migration, you know, an equal number of people coming and going, then the minimum contribution rate of our separate plan would rise, I estimate, to 9%. Still lower than the CPP, I'll note, but a lot of that advantage then evaporates. And then other risks, of course, things like mortality and fertility rates. 
you know, our fertility rate's different than the national average. If, if we were to be at the national average fertility rate, then contribution rate rises a little bit as well. So the closer Alberta gets to looking like the rest of the country, the smaller that pension advantage becomes. A lot of the, the arguments around this to get wrapped up, I think, in Alberta's place in Confederation uh, sure. in, in these issues. But, I mean, you know, strictly speaking on the economics, you know, we can have a reasonable conversation. Part of that is, I guess, you know, how strong is CPP? Like, if we're going to consider staying in it, what about that question of how much faith we can have? Is, is CPP strong right now? Yeah, it, it is, thanks in large part to reforms implemented in the late 1990s. In, in, interestingly, Jim Dinning, who's now chairing the pension uh, panel that's going to consult Albertans, he was instrumental in enacting those reforms in the 1990s. And they basically have put the Canada Pension Plan now on such a solid footing that the actuaries that look at it out to 2100, so the end of the century, think that a 9.5% contribution rate would sustain the plan. But we currently have a 9.9% contribution rate. So there's actually a little bit of room even to absorb some adverse future risks. And, and that makes Canada quite different than several other countries. Lots of other advanced economies have really troubling situations in terms of their uh, pension plans. The U.S. Social Security is going to run out of funds in 2023, which is not, sorry, 2033, so not too far away. Right. So the CPP is, is sustainable, and I, I think in fairness, a, a separate Alberta plan could be set up that's sustainable as well. It's just more exposed to risks than the Canada pension plan is. Does Alberta leaving or would Alberta leaving jeopardize the strength of the CPP at all, or how, how would it affect the, those provinces still in it? Yeah, great question. And that, I think the answer is it depends. And it depends because a separate Alberta pension plan also takes some of the CPP obligations with it. So it'll all come down to how much of the CPP assets are given to Alberta. And I estimate that if Alberta receives less than 22.5% of the CPP assets, then contribution rates elsewhere wouldn't actually need to increase. So in the state of the world that LifeWorks and the government we're putting forward today, where over half the fund goes to Alberta, then contribution rates would need to increase elsewhere to make up for it. But if it's just 20% or so of the fund that goes to Alberta, then the CPP wouldn't need to increase its rates. Very interesting. Well, we'll see where this all goes from here. Trevor, appreciate your input uh, on all this uh, this afternoon. Thanks again for bringing some time for us. My pleasure. Take all care. All the best. Uh, Trevor Toome, Associate Professor of Economics, University of Calgary, Research uh, Fellow at the School of Public Policy. So an interesting analysis from, from Trevor and finding that, yes, even with a much smaller take in terms of uh, how much of those CPP assets we could claim, there's certainly still the potential that uh, our contribution rates would be lower while benefits would still be more or less the same. And so that, that, I think that's part of an argument in favor of an Alberta uh, pension plan. You mean that we can get comparable benefits but not have to contribute as much? Like, that sounds like a better pension plan. But yes, yeah, so, so much of this hinges on what we can reasonably claim from those, those CPP assets. So the government has a much more optimistic expectation. That's how they come up with a contribution rate of 5.9% which, as mentioned, is, is four percentage points lower than what it is now with CPP. Uh, but even Trevor Toome's more modest uh, assumption about how much we could claim would still have us at a contribution rate of 8.2%. 
again, still uh, lower than, than the federal rate. So there's some uncertainty as you look forward in terms of Alberta's changing demographics. How long do these advantages hold for us? Hey, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on a Thursday afternoon. A few other things we'll get to in our time remaining. We can get back to some of your phone calls. I want to talk right now about an interesting documentary set to screen this weekend and early next week at the Calgary International Film Festival about a very recognizable Alberta fast food chain and its colorful and interesting history. Have you ever eaten at a burger baron? I think most Albertans probably have, or if not, you've probably seen one. But what is burger baron? There's certainly some, some similarities, some common threads between the burger barons that exist or have existed across the province. But it really isn't a, a chain, strictly speaking. There really isn't a connection between these burger barons that exist. So what and who is the burger baron? And what does it have to do uh, with the Lebanese diaspora community here in Alberta? Well, it's a really interesting history there, and as mentioned, it's explored in a new documentary, uh, part of the Calgary International Film Festival. Uh, you can see it uh, Saturday at 1.15. In fact, uh, our next guest is going to be there, and then again on Tuesday night at 6.45. BurgerBaronMovie.com is uh, the website. The film is called The Lebanese Burger Mafia. Uh, joining us on the line is the writer, producer, director of said film, Omar Mualam. Uh, joining us on the line here this afternoon. Omar, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. No, thanks, Rob. I love being on the show. Let's talk about where the idea for this came from, because it is a fascinating story, which is why I think this film's resonating mm -hmm. with so many people. But it's it's also very personal to you. Yeah, I mean, where did the story start? We can, I mean, we can start literally on the day I was born, if you yeah. want. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, uh, in September of 1985, uh, my family was in the process of moving from Slave Lake, uh, where my dad uh, immigrated from Lebanon, um, to High Prairie, where he planned to open up a restaurant that would that he would eventually call Burger Baron. Um, that's an important distinction because when right. when he is opening the restaurant in High Prairie, striking out on his own, um, he plans on calling it uh, Prairie Pizza and Steak. Um, but then his uncle in Slave Lake, who mentored him, and who owned a Burger Baron in Slave Lake, was like, what are you doing, man? Just call it a Burger Baron. <laughs> Just like, no, no one's going to stop you. Uh, you already know the recipes. Put the mushroom burger on there. Put the Baron burger on it. And then do whatever it is that you want to do. Because um, my dad wanted to, to open kind of a, a fancier restaurant with like a bar and a, a pool table and a place that you might go for a date. Right. It didn't occur to him that he could just call that a burger baron. And that's what he did. And that's that's when I became a, a baronet. Yeah. And so that's what's so unique about this. I mean, you know, nowadays, I guess if you want to open a, a subway restaurant, you see a lot of those in small towns. There's a company you go through. You're, you're a franchisee. There's there's rules and standards as to how everything's supposed to be. Not with, with Burger Baron. Not with Burger Baron. It's, I mean, there is yeah, uh, I mean, there is the name. choice. <laughs> right? The, the name exists. The, the logo yeah. is mostly kind of the same. The red and white building, sometimes often with the pointy roof, is kind of often the same. But there's no real structure here. There's no real franchise here. 
Yeah, and I, and I would argue actually that the the logo is quite different because yeah. m- most people who grew up in a city, um, you know, especially those who grew up in Edmonton, they recognize the the little cartoon Baron guy right. who might have some variations, you know, give or take about forty pounds to that mascot. Um, yes. But in small towns, I mean, you you may or may not see that mascot. You may see a completely different logo. You may see, as you know, as my parents' restaurant was called, it was Burger Baron Pizza and Steak. Um, or in Caroline, there's Baron's Family Restaurant, um, and the menus are completely different, um, especially in the small towns because they're trying to cast a wide net, cater to as many people as possible. Um, so you might see veal, you know, on a or seafood salad, right? You wouldn't expect that at a little burger shack. Right. But what I, what I think is most interesting, and this is kind of what sparked the investigation um, into it, is that all the owners were like my parents, Lebanese immigrants. Yeah. And so I, I became kind of fascinated, maybe an understatement, obsessed with how that happened. And I needed to track down like the OG Baron and find out who it was, how did this happen, and also maybe thank him as well for what he gave my family and so many people in my community, because Burke Baron essentially became the uh, a pathway to the mm-hmm. immigrant dream in Canada, at least in Alberta. Yeah, and what's interesting? So th- this can be pinpointed, and you do this in the film. the The original Burger Baron there there was a first Burger Baron restaurant, mm-hmm. but had nothing to do with with in Lebanon Calgary, or or the oh was it okay? But nothing to do with the Le- Lebanese diaspora. Not at all. No, no. The original one was in Calgary on McLeod. That's Burger Baron number one. It opened on November the first, nineteen fifty seven. And the the originator was not Lebanese. He was actually a uh, Irish American uh, named Jack McDonald. I know what a yeah. perfect last name, right? It doesn't get better than that. Um, he he was a serial entrepreneur. Had no background in in restaurants or hospitality, but he had you know many businesses over the course of his life. And uh, he just saw the rise of fast food in the U.S., especially I think the the expansion of McDonald's at that time in the 50s, which was, you know, quite aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, you know, he was he lived in Montana, uh, must have had some connections to Canada, to Alberta, enough to know that fast food hadn't really um, taken hold in the north as as much as it had in the U.S. So he essentially moved up his entire family to Calgary to open what he hoped would be the McDonald's or A&W of Canada. And quite quickly, it looks like that's exactly what he was doing. I mean, there were 30 Burger Barons, all of them part of this actual centralized corporation, uh, 30 of them in about three years. But it was expanding way too fast. And he was taking on a lot of debt and eventually caught up to him and it went bankrupt. And in that process of bankruptcy, it does not seem that the intellectual property the trademarks were properly passed down. And on top of that, out of, out of guilt, perhaps, he actually he released the recipes of his secret sauces to the franchisees, basically giving them the, franchise, the, the recipes and, and bidding them good luck. You know, sorry, this didn't work out. Mm-hmm. So you, and, you had and, it, And that's right? kind of how, yeah. it go, how it started to go rogue. Right. So you have in the aftermath of that, like something that, that's actually there, a concept, a, a brand, but there, there's no longer any structure. There's no headquarters. There, there's no marching orders. Uh, so there's a real opportunity there. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, I think you have to be um, 
quite shrewd to see the opportunity there because for most people it was actually a bummer right like we invested in this brand and now you know it's no more like why would we what what is the possible upside of maintaining a burger baron when there's no centralized office you don't get any of the same buying power you used to any of the mass marketing but you still have to maintain this nebulous brand um, that's that's not exactly appealing to people. So it's no wonder that over the next few years, qu- like quite a few, almost all the burger barons had closed or opened into some change into something else. Mm-hmm. But there was one guy, Rudy Kemaldeen, a Lebanese immigrant, um, who saw the opportunity to take Burger Baron, the loyal customer base, the popularity and reputation of that, and I guess deliver on the quality that that used to be promised from it, but also to sort of capitalize on that reputation, open more burger barons without asking anyone for permission, just doing his own thing, changing it, in some ways improving the brand. You you talked about earlier that that sort of candy stripe um, uh, uh, design of the yeah. buildings, right? And people associate that with the original burger baron, but it's not actually. Rudy Kamaldine added that. Oh. And so when you see that design, you know it was influenced by Rudy. So he actually took the brand and in some ways, you know, added to it, tried to, and to his credit, like he did try to make it consistent across his his various restaurants and then the ones that he brought his family members from Lebanon to to open and run. But it went it eventually went rogue when it once it became part of the collective conscience of of uh, of the Lebanese Alberta community, there was nothing he could do to kind of rein it in. Right. And so this coincides with, you know, that that wave of immigration to Canada, the unrest in Lebanon and, you know, families looking for those those opportunities. And so it all just kind of came together in a weird way. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that's how it trickles down to my family. You know, strangely, when I started, um, when I started looking into the origins of the Burger Baron, um, I thought my dad would be helpful. He wasn't. You know, <laughs> he had no idea how he ended up with the Burger Baron. He didn't, he had never heard of Rudy Kemaldine's name. He never, he, he had no idea. Um, to him, it was just something that, like, you know, was passed down through the Lebanese community through, through handshakes and good favors. Right. And goodwill. Um, but it was really cool to find um, Rudy, because even though he, he is not the originator, he's an incredible, incredibly generous man who, who kind of knew what he was doing. Like he understood that he was giving away the restaurant and that he was going to lose control of it. But it didn't matter that much to him because what, what he loved more than that was seeing people succeed. He loved seeing people from his village, people from his country do well in this country. Um, and he was really proud of that. And, you know, it's been really great to um, release this movie while, you know, while he and some of these other, like, you know, older barons are still alive because it's, it's nice for them to see their legacies reflected back at them. I think they, I think they deserve that. And it's nice for, for Rudy and some of these others to finally get their flowers. Yeah. Well, in the title of the film, and it's meant to be tongue-in-cheek, just in case anyone's yeah. under any illusions about <laughs> that. No real mafia. No, but it is funny because there's sort of a, not a lawlessness, but almost like a, a free-for-all, right? And so there's behind-the-scenes rivalries. There's colorful, yes. colorful characters here. It, it is in a kind of blues fun way, almost resembles yeah. that world. Exactly. In the, in the same way that a, that a uh, mafia 
sort of <laughs> works through these like back channels, this, you know, these sort of like handshakes and, and favors. Burger Baron operated like that. Um, but in the same way that a mafia often gets, um, you know, kind of gets, it, it becomes disorderly, you know, dysfunctional, mm-hmm. where there's rivalries and backstabbing. Um, that that kind of happened here as well with the Burger Baron. And in the, the 80s, uh, and we'll cover this in the film in one of my favorite um, sequences of, of the movie, um, there were several attempts to rein it in, to unify the Burger Baron. Um, Like several, you know, summits of the Barons, if you will. Um, And all of them, every single one of them, just goes off the rails in a uh, completely hilarious but also predictable way. Um, And, you know, it's not just, you know, I think the... um, the personalities of the barons that is to cause for that. But it's also has a lot to do with um, this distinctly Lebanese quality of fierce independence Mm -hmm. that we, we discuss a little bit in this film as well. Um, There is, you know, anyone who grew up in a, in a Lebanese community or has, has close relatives, uh, Lebanese relatives will, will recognize it. It is, uh, it's this stubbornness, it's this mix of generosity, but also like, you know, stubbornness and, um, and, and independence that, you know, sometimes we will, uh, sometimes we will make decisions in spite of our best interests just because we don't want to be told what to do. It's interesting, too, and I think maybe because of the fuzzy origins of this brand and, and just uh, some of the quirkiness, like there's a, there's a real cult following around the Burger Baron, isn't there? Definitely, definitely. Um, and that, that's, uh, you know, that's, we, we've obviously benefited a lot from that, that cult following. Um, it was one of the reasons why when we were first releasing this as a short film uh, for CBC in two, 2021, um, just through word of mouth, people were getting pretty excited about this Burger Baron movie. And so when it came out and, and it found its audience and became quite popular, um, especially for a TV documentary. I mean, documentaries aren't usually popular. Um, we, we recognized that there was an opportunity to turn this into a feature film, and that's when we started crowdfunding. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, we offered a lot of perks. Uh, we definitely targeted the Burger Baron superfans, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> gave them an opportunity to kind of uh, own uh, a piece of, you know, Burger Baron merchandise or, um, you know, uh, little Burger Baron miniatures and posters and that kind of stuff. Um, but that that's that's how we we funded this feature film. Um, it's a it's a scrappy little uh, independent movie, but uh, the response to it has been great. Um, it was really cool when it opened at Hot Docs in Toronto earlier this year, and we had two sold out screenings in, in Toronto. And uh, it's just been uh, yeah, it's continuing to ride this wave. Right. And yeah, I think, you know, this, this is, as you say, you were in Toronto, you've, you've screened this internationally. I mean, you know, this is near and dear to Alberta's heart, I think, in, in many ways. And I mean, it's not about just about something that once existed. I mean, at least outside of Edmonton and Calgary, there, there are still burger barons that, that endure. Yeah, yeah, there are. I think that, you know, I think that the the popularity in Alberta didn't surprise me at all. Um you know, I'd, I'd written about Burger Baron about 10 years ago in this article for the Calgary Herald's uh, magazine back then. It was called Swerve, called Will the Real Burger Baron Please Stand Up? And that was a very popular article uh, in Alberta. Um, but but I think, you know, I've been quite delightfully surprised to see it um, catch on nationally, um, internationally now. Um, it will be opening in theaters across Canada November 10th. 
And I think maybe I underestimated the the universality of that immigrant story, yeah. right? The, oh, the yeah. themes of, of of sacrifice and family and hard work. I've heard, you know, people who, uh, you know, come from Vietnamese and South Asian families and Chinese families tell me that they saw their families reflected back at them on screen. And I get that. I do. Well, it's a part of the Calgary International Film Festival, Saturday at 1.15, and you're going to be in attendance. Uh, there's a whole big to-do around the Saturday screening. Another opportunity coming up Tuesday, uh, 6.45. More details at ciffcalgary.ca. As you mentioned, the theatrical release coming in November. Much more at burgerbaronmovie.com. Omar, thanks so much for making some time for us here. Great conversation, and uh, congrats on the film once again. Oh, thank you. This has been such a pleasure. Likewise. So you go Omar Moalam. He is uh, the writer, producer, director of the Lebanese Burger Mafia. Uh, an interesting look at the history of the Burger Baron chain. And it is quite a history. And, and yes, very much linked, uh, you know, to the, that wave of Lebanese immigrants that came in the late 70s and early 80s and what they turned it into. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.